Welcome to the Audible, presented as always by Trader Joe's. We thank them for the gift cards that you guys just got for the uh, trivia questions. And thanks so much to uh, Andy and to all our guests and everybody at The Athletic who helped put this together. Uh, sorry for being late. I went the wrong way. And... <laughs> he was actually looking, you spent a little too long like looking at all the uh, rock bands who have played House of Blues before. So I think we should, uh, this is the first time Stu and I have been together in a little bit to do the podcast, except for one episode, and I want to commend Stu, he has uh, lost 20 pounds, uh, Soul Cycle. so if they want to sponsor our podcast, it would be appreciated. So, I of course, the guy who does the freaks list would make a special effort to, to highlight my weight. I went from working with Brady Quinn for a couple of years to now, he's our, the athletics version of Brady Quinn. Anyway, uh, as you guys know, I mean, we're here for the national championship for LSU and Clemson, but we cover the whole sport. And this was a very newsy week in college football. And in the biggest story involves somebody who Bruce knows very well, Mike Leach. He is, if you don't know, Bruce co-authored his book, Swing Your Sword, which was a New York Times bestseller. Um, he had kind of seemed like he had wandering eyes for a few years there uh, at Washington State. He almost became the coach of Tennessee a couple years ago. Why Mississippi State? Why do you think this was the job he left for? Yeah, so he really accepted the Tennessee job a couple of years ago, and it blew up when Phil Fulmer took over the athletic department and John Curry, the AD there, got blown out of there. And I think talking to people close to Leach, one of the reasons why, first of all, he felt like there were bigger resources at Mississippi State. There's a way better recruiting pool in the state of Mississippi and the surrounding area, much less, much better than the Pacific Northwest. But then the biggest thing was really it's a chance to coach in the SEC. And I think for Leach, he's obviously had success wherever he's been. Now he hasn't won national titles, but now as somebody else who used to work with him texted me, he's like, he's in the deep end of the pool now. And I think that was a pretty, you know, apt, you know, description of it. And so we're going to see how he does. I'm going to ask you, because you know him a little bit. He turned around Washington State. He led that program had, had won nine games in the previous four years before he took over. Last year they won eleven. They never won eleven before. How do you think he's going to do in the SEC West? I have some mixed feelings about it because I did want to see him come to the SEC and see what he could do with the elite recruits that you can get in the SEC. But he went he went to the school where it is the hardest probably in the whole conference outside of maybe Vanderbilt uh, to get those elite recruits to come. So. We know at this point two different two other schools kind of like this. I mean, I think he will have them going to bowl games. He will have them, uh, you know, competing for six, seven, maybe eight wins. But is he going to really test Nick Saban? And and that division is just loaded now. Nick Saban, Gus Malzahn, Ed Ogeron, Jimbo Fisher, now Lane Kiffin. I don't know. I, I could see it going either way. Yeah, I think the hardest thing is going to be those reasons you mentioned. If you look at him leaving uh, the Pac-12 North, where Oregon is recruiting really well with Mario Cristobal, but after that, it's not a brutal division. And now you're in the place where it is LSU, which is pushing for a national title. Nick Saban's still there. Jimbo Fisher's recruiting hard. I mean, it's... it's I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to get past eight wins there because of who you're going up against. And the other thing that I think is interesting is the school that has whipped him more than any other was Chris Peterson's team and Jimmy Lake's defense. And what they did was Leach really couldn't, his teams couldn't block them. And so now you're going to face a bunch of teams with a bunch of Vita Veyas in the defensive line. And that didn't work out so well for him. It might not go well. I mean, I think Washington's, I mean, uh, Mississippi State, after seeing Ole Miss hire Lane Kiffin and all the attention that came with that, Maybe felt like they got to do something to get attention. I just don't know if necessarily it was the best path to go X's and O's wise. But now you've got this crazy SEC West where you've got six experienced head coaches who've all had varying degrees of success. And then Arkansas fans aren't happy with me for pointing this out on Twitter. But then Arkansas has Sam Pittman, who's never been a head coach, offensive line coach from Georgia, who's facing this massive rebuilding task. 
it's going to be a highly competitive division over the next few years. Five, five years from now, who is more successful, Mike Leach or Lane Kiffin? It's funny because you always put me on the spot like that, but usually people don't get to see me, see, the, see my head spinning trying to figure it out. Uh, I have more faith in Lane Kiffin uh, because, well, if, unless he does something off the field that would cause him to get fired. But in terms of just football-wise, he has, I mean, he's, he's done it in that conference. Uh, obviously, he had to, did it with Alabama's players. But, um, you know, I think his track record since USC, the two jobs since then, have been well-documented. And I think Ole Miss has shown recently they can recruit NFL players there. I don't, you know, Mississippi State, outside of the Dak Prescott, you know, one or two year amazing run has always been kind of the doing it the overachiever way. Yeah, it's crazy to think about this, but like, I think we all think now Dan Mullen's a top 25 coach. You and I have had this discussion on the podcast a bunch. He was 33 and 39 career wise in the SEC, right? And so I think that shows you how much of an uphill climb it is if you're in Starkville. I'm sure by this time next year, the Athletic will have done an oral history on all the events that took place from the moment Elijah Moore, the Ole Miss receiver, mimicked a, a urinating dog at the end of the Egg Bowl. It ended up in two coaching changes and the domino effect that, that's going to go from there. Now Washington State obviously has an opening. We'll see what happens there. Staying in the SEC, uh, this week Jake Fromm, Georgia's quarterback, turned pro. I wasn't entirely surprised by it, but he did have a pretty rough year, and a lot of people thought maybe it would be better if he came back and tried to redeem himself next year. Uh, Georgia moved very quickly to replace him. They signed Jamie Newman, the grad transfer from Wake Forest, who not a lot of people maybe know about, but he had a uh, first couple months of the season. He looked really good. What do you think that does for Georgia? Uh, you know, I think he's got to be the guy. If you look at what they have now, they lost a bunch of offensive linemen from last year, from this past year's team. Now, Pickens turned out to be, people watching him in the bowl game, He's a really special player. I think they're always going to have running backs, but now you bring in Jamie Newman. I had talked to him during the week and about why he left, and he you know, called it a business decision. He said Wake Forest and all the RPO game, he wanted to do something a little more in line with what he thought would develop him for the NFL. He's really talented now. He's got a big arm. He runs well. I mean, in terms of just physical skill set. He's different from Jake Fromm. He's got a much stronger arm. He's more athletic. You know, are they going to open things up more with him? Is it going to be, you know, you got Pickens, you got some some weapons, but I'm interested to see how quickly he can transition because we've seen a lot of a mixed bag with grad transfer quarterbacks. Now, him getting there in time to be to go through the spring is helpful, but I think as, you know, as Andy and T-Bob said and, and Brody pointed out, the Joe Burrow thing, everybody's looking for the next Joe Burrow, but that's, that's the unicorn. Well, for seven or eight years, Russell, it was Russell Wilson was the, the gold standard of grad transfer quarterback. It didn't seem like anybody else came close. And now, just in this past year, we had not just Joe Burrow, but Jalen Hurts. Uh, so the two Heisman finalists were grad transfers, or two top finishers were grad transfers. Uh, all right, so that was a little bit of spin ahead to 2020. Now we're going to kind of shift back to the game and take a little bit of a, a trip down memory lane for LSU fans. Uh, you guys know him well. He was the star running back of the 2007 BCS champion LSU Tigers, Jacob Hester. So I wanted to start with something Jacob had pointed out to me uh, just a few minutes ago, where Nick Saban had found him. You were a two-star recruit, and how much did you yeah. weigh? Uh, two-star recruit, 895th in the country, uh, in case anybody was wondering. 253 pounds. I was playing nose guard and running back. Great combination there to find your SEC running back playing nose guard uh, in high school. But uh, I, look, I, I kind of got lucky. Coach Saban came to LSU to recruit five other guys, one of them being John David Booty, who uh, a good friend of mine won two Rose Bowls in USC, and, you know, for whatever reason, thank goodness I had a good day at practice that day, and he left, and I was the only guy that he offered after coming to practice that day, and it really started my recruiting process, and so uh, it, it's really a great message that I'm able to share with, you know, young guys that I talk with today, 
So I'm like, every practice matters. And it sounds cliche, but I'm like, guys, I'm telling you, every practice literally matters because I'd probably be playing, you know, nose guard at Louisiana Tech or somewhere if he didn't come there. I mean, that, that was really, my offers were Louisiana Tech and Texas Tech at the time. So did you know, you, you, like Nick Saban's out here, or you feel stressing that? I had no idea. Yeah, we, we look, and, and you know, you've seen uh, the high school that I went to at the time. There, there was a lot of really good football players, and college coaches would show up here in the spring and during the season, and they would kind of always be there. And So you just you had to go out there and practice every single day like you thought Matt Brown or Nick Saban or one of these coaches was watching. So you played for Les Miles. You guys won a national championship doing it the old school Les Miles way. What's it been like to watch this 2019 LSU team that's kind of reinventing the way this program has ever played offense? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Look, I was a guy that loved three yards in a cloud of dust. I loved playing in a phone booth because that was my skill set and running inside. But, man, it had to change. You had to do something different. College football changed. Everybody had changed, right? Alabama and Nick Saban had changed. And you can win a lot of games playing great defense and running the football and, and controlling the clock like LSU did, but you didn't play for championships. And so, you know, winning games is great, but LSU has a standard of winning championships and playing for championships. And so it had to change, and you saw it start to change last year. Really at the end of the season, you saw Joe Burrow become more comfortable, right? Let's remember he got there, you know, the end of May, and all of a sudden he was a starting quarterback. When they played Georgia at LSU, that's when it kind of became Joe's team, and you could tell – the offense had a little bit of something. That wasn't all the way out yet, but you could tell something was coming. And then you had the seven-overtime game against Texas A&M. You had the Fiesta Bowl against UCF. And regardless of what we all think of UCF, at the time, that was a team that hadn't lost in two years. And so you started to see it at the end of last year. But, man, none of us could have seen this coming, what they're doing this year. Yeah, I think the UCF game is interesting just because I remember watching it from the Rose Bowl press box. Burrow throws a pick six. Not only is it a pick six, he gets absolutely obliterated. There's a D lineman kind of taunting him. And I'm thinking, LSU's about to get embarrassed here because the quarterback is going to be out of the game. No knock on Miles Brennan, but it's going to be a big drop off and they're going to get embarrassed. And, you know, this is what, and then he comes back in the game and he plays lights out. And I feel like, you know, he was playing well, at, at, as you said, before that in the AM game, but it's been completely different. But what I think you're a great person to, to really talk about and explain is, you were really versatile running back. Clyde Edwards Hilaire, Stu and I have had like a back and forth about this, but just how what a special weapon he is for them. Why is he so unique and so good in this system? Well, he, he might be the second most important player on this football team outside of Joe Burrow. And that's why when he got injured in practice and you weren't quite sure if he was going to play in the Oklahoma game, everybody freaked out a little bit because when you look at usage rate in power five running backs, he came in at number four. He played ninety one percent of the offensive snaps for LSU. I mean, that's a gigantic number anywhere, but especially at LSU because even when Leonard Fournette was there, he had Darius Geis and Darrell Williams and all these guys, and so LSU always had a group of running backs, but he was the guy. He's the bell cow, and he's a guy, and I got this quote from Devin White, who, of course, was a top-five NFL draft pick, one of the best linebackers in SEC history. He said what makes Clyde so tough is you, you lose him, right? Because of his size, you lose him a little bit, and then once he gets on you, he's strong enough to run you over. So his size and speed and the combination of strength just really doesn't match each other. And he said he makes it almost impossible to tackle him because when you find him, he can make you miss and look stupid with a spin move. He can run over you or he can just run by you. And so not a lot of guys have that skill set. And everybody tries to find a comp for Clyde Edwards Elair. I'm not sure that there's one out there. Uh, you know, he's got a little bit of Darren Scrolls in him. He's got a little bit of Mark Ingram in him. He's got a, a little bit of everybody, and it makes him really unique. Kevin Pocket told me, the guy, he said, I mentioned this to an NFL scout, I said, don't think I'm crazy, he's got a little Barry Sanders in him. Yeah, and, and that's fair. Now, I mean, Barry Sanders is here and everybody tries to get to that point, but he does have a little bit in that because he's never down just because the defense tells him he should be. A lot of running backs, and I'll throw myself in there, if I'm running stretch and the defense gives me three yards, a lot of times I'm going to take three yards, and that's what the defense gives you. He'll see that, he'll take the three yards, but then he'll make another four yards on something else he can do. He's got uh, you know, a plan B within the run. After the ball stand, that's hard to do, to change your running style. And he's done it throughout the year in, in a game. I'm talking to him on the sidelines of the Alabama game, and if you'll remember, he made you know six people miss with the spin move. Well, then he saw that the linebackers were waiting on the spin move. And once they did that, you saw him put his you know head right in their, in their shoulder pads and drive them back. 
And to be able to change your running style in the middle of a game like that is pretty, uh, pretty special. So LSU's got a special quarterback and a special running back, but so does Clemson. Uh, now, now uh, LSU faced, obviously, they faced Tua. They have faced some great players this year. But as you have watched LSU's defense this year, which has been a little bit up and down, how concerned should they be uh, facing this Clemson offense? I mean, when you look at this Clemson offense, obviously, and you mentioned it, I mean, they're elite at quarterback, elite at receiver, elite at running back. That's what makes both these teams truly special, not just good, but elite. And, look, Higgins and Ross, 6'4", 210, 215, that's a different skill set. And they face, you know, Alabama's got a quartet of receivers that are as good as anybody in the country, but a lot of it is they're quick twitch, they're fast, they can run straight ahead. I mean, these guys for Clemson are, are big physical receivers that can high point the football. So it creates a different challenge. And obviously they've got the guy that not, you know, you got number one this year, Joe Burrow, number one next year and Trevor Lawrence throwing them the football. And so that's going to be something different. They haven't seen really big receivers like that a ton this year. Texas and Texas A&M had some, but not to the level that they're about to face here on Monday. So that's something to pay attention to. And Travis Etienne, he, he can do it all. I mean, look, Ohio State did a really nice job of shutting down the run, but he had a big night catching the football and turning that into six points. And so there's so many different things that this LSU defense has to cover for Clemson. If, if, if I'm LSU, I have to create pressure on him. Caleb on has been as good as anybody the last four games he's played. He's got to continue that because you have to get to Trevor Lawrence and try to make him uncomfortable. Stu, uh, during the uh, SEC title game, so there's a play everybody remembers. It's probably the most Heisman moment Joe Burrow had in that game where he evades people, and then he finds Justin Jefferson. It's like a 70-yard play. Do you know what I'm going to say now? So Jacob's by me, and Tommy Moffat, the longtime strength coach, comes over, and he says, at the sideline's going crazy, he goes, I told an NFL scout before the season, he's Peyton Manning, but more athletic, or something like that. And Tommy walked away, and you said, I played with Peyton in Denver. He was pretty good. <laughs> was like, but you had Phillip Rivers yeah. in San Diego. You obviously had Peyton. Yeah. You feel like, and I'm not trying to say he's going to be a Hall of Fame NFL right. quarterback, but when, you, when your team has the level of confidence, it seems like not just the offensive guy, but everybody has in Joe Burrow. How much of a game changer is it? Like, what does that do for a team to have that level of belief? Right. Peyton once told us, like, his confidence came because he knew he was the most prepared guy in the room. And somebody asked him, like, where does it come from? He goes, I know there's not a situation that can come up that I'm not ready for. And I pride myself in that. You know, I want to be the first one in here. I want to be the last one to leave, but not just because. I want to make sure that I do that with a purpose. And I saw Peyton Manning have one missed assignment in the two years I played. Like, one missed assignment. Now, we gave him hell when he had that one missed assignment, but he just, he was a machine. And Joe Burrow has that at this level. He's the most prepared guy in every situation. Can you imagine playing college football in the last six weeks? The defense has shown you something they've never put on tape. We would have been a mess. And we had a really good veteran quarterback in Matt Flynn. But that, that's hard to do at this level, to be able to see something you've never seen and then get on a headset, adjust to it after one series. And they probably already scored in that one series that they faced that defense. That's not stuff you see from college kids, and especially Joe Burrow, the way – you know, that he doesn't allow it to rattle him. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Well, one of the things, like we were at uh, media day today with all the coaches and players and, um, you know, talking to, to Brent Venables about it, some of the other guys there, you would understand this better than, than the average fan. So we talked about, you, you just mentioned the defenses and the adjustments they make, but, I mean, basically it seems like Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger, they, once they see what, uh, what this team has prepared for them that week, they can like change the entire game plan after the first series. Like, what has it been like to see how this offense not only has a great base offense, but how they then adjust mid-game? Yeah, all that obviously comes from Stevens, Minger, and Joe Brady being able to communicate that with Joe. But you have so many different weapons that allows you to do that, right? I mean, you can toy with some stuff. You can move Justin Jefferson to the slot. You can, you know, hey, we're going to make sure Thaddeus Moss gets six catches today or whatever that is. When you have five weapons like that, it allows you to adjust. Because if you just had one pony at the show, well, that's all we can do. But they have five true weapons. And I thought it was interesting today that Brent Venable said, we're not going to try to reinvent the wheel. We're going to play who we are. And LSU's made guys that we all respect, and, and Kevin Steele, and Kirby Smart, and really Texas A&M, Arkansas. You can go down the list, John Chavis, change completely what they do. 
I mean, within one week, they said, and Georgia had the number two defense in the country, and they said, what we do, we don't feel like we can go in and win this game. We've got to change what we do. And that's the ultimate respect. But I also respect uh, Brent Venables. He's like, hey, we're going to be us. We're going to do what we do. We're not going to try to, like he mentioned, reinvent the wheel. And the two numbers out of his mouth when he was talking about LSU's offense, the first ones were number 22, Clyde Edwards Hilaire, and he said number one, uh, 81, Thaddeus Moss. That was interesting to me because we all know about Jefferson and Marshall and Chase. He's talking about the guys like Clyde Edwards Elayer, the X factors, right? That if you don't take care of those guys, you don't pay them enough attention, they'll beat you. Does that mean that they are more concerned about their safety than linebackers in space? Like, how do you interpret it? That's the way I took it. I took it that he knows that LSU is a five man protection team. They've ran five man, uh, man protection more than any team in this country. And that, you know, that's free release in your back. He has no responsibilities and pass protection because you want to get him out in the route. You want to get the ball out of your hands. And those short intermediate routes over the middle of the football field, it sounded like they felt like they can make some hay, you know, with Clyde Edwards Eler and Thaddeus Moss. One thought uh, just from talking to some of the LSU coaches in the last 24 hours was Clemson blitzes more than any team they've faced, especially in like the third and medium situations. From what you just said and from what we've seen from, from Joe Burrow this year, does that feel like that could be playing into his hands? I, look, his numbers, uh, when teams pressure him, the fact that they're still 70% completion percentage is just ridiculous. And, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those deals where his numbers just kept going up when teams pressured him. And Texas tried, and they couldn't get home, and he had a heyday there. And then there was a point in the middle of the season where teams just stopped pressuring him because he was getting the ball out of his hands. You're creating windows for him to throw it into, and they felt like rushing three and dropping eight was the best game plan. So there hasn't really been a team that's tried to pressure Joe because of the success he had early in the season, but I assume Clemson is. That's just who they are. And when you hear Brent Venable say that, I believe him. I mean, he, he's as prideful as there is, and he had a great game plan against Tua Tagovailoa last year. They confused them, and I think they're going to roll their defense out there and, and live or die by it. So before we let you go, i got to ask, everybody knows, everybody that reads me knows I'm a BCS nerd. Right? I, I miss the BCS to some extent, as crazy as it was. And you guys, that season, the 2007 season, was without question the craziest of all. You guys lost your second game of the season Thanksgiving weekend, and a week later win the SEC, and you're in the BCS championship. As Now, we in the media were the ones debating the numbers and who deserves and what the resume was, but as a player that year, like, how did you keep track of where you were in the race? Oh, it was nuts. And I'd be lying to everybody here if I said after we lost to Arkansas, I thought we'd find a way to get back in the championship game just because no two-loss team had ever done it. But, you know, we were still excited about playing in the SEC championship game. It was against Tennessee, and that still means something to win your conference title in the SEC. So we were excited about it. But as we finished the game and we realized that some of these things are coming into motion, right, all these things have to happen, and we got a shot at this deal – it was the greatest feeling of all time to be on an airplane. It was way before there was like Wi-Fi or everybody had a phone. You could get scores on a plane. And so the pilot is calling down to air traffic, and he's getting the scores, and he is announcing them over the PA system. And so like every time he comes on, he's like, and Pittsburgh – 35, West Virginia, and like whatever the score was. Yeah. I don't even remember, but he's like making you guys needed both – Oklahoma, I mean, Missouri and West Virginia to lose we, that night. We did, and thank God for LaShawn McCoy, right? Look, because <laughs> he beat West Virginia almost by himself, but the pilot was almost toying with us. But then when the last score comes in, we realized we're, we found our way back into this national championship game. The place goes crazy. There's blankets and uh, pillows and just all kind of stuff just flying in the air. I'm pretty sure Matt Flint kissed the back of Skip Bertman's head, who was our athletic director <laughs> at the time. And so the, it was a, it was a special season. It was a crazy season. Kansas won the Orange Bowl that year, if that tells you anything. Yes. And so it was, it was nuts. It all comes back to Dave Wanstead. That's that was the, <laughs> Bruce and I worked with Dave Wanstead. We love Dave Wanstead, and yes, he helped get you guys into the national championship. Right, absolutely. All right. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Obviously, it's. Uh, the stories have been awesome to hear and the perspective you have, uh, especially for LSU fans who are on the cusp of something, and not just that, to have it here. Yeah. What is this place going to be like if they do win? It's going to be special. Uh, I, I would assume everybody here was here at least in 03, 07, or 11. They've been in this situation. It's remarkable that LSU, you know, in 58 they played New Orleans, and then 03, 07, 11, like I just mentioned, in New Orleans, 19 now in New Orleans. And... When your school has played in five national championship games, they're all in the same city that's about an hour drive from your campus. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, 
Growing up in Louisiana and, and being a Louisiana kid, you dream of getting to this place in high school and playing your state championship games here. So every time you break it down in high school, it's one, two, three, dome, right? Because this place is the mecca of professional sports in Louisiana. I mean, every young man wants to play in this building. And so when you get the opportunity to, it's not just that it's in your home state. The Superdome means something to everybody on LSU's roster. And so uh, very fortunate to be able to play championship games here. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping it turns out better than 11. I hope more <laughs> of the uh, 0307 uh, outcome. All right, well, Jake, we can't thank you enough for coming out today. Tell people where they can hear you now. Oh, yeah. Uh, tune in to uh, Sirius XEC Radio, uh, 6 to 9 a.m. Central Time. We do uh, SEC this morning, and then 104.5 ESPN Baton Rouge from 1 to 3. There you go. Bruce, I hope we have some um, – we've got LSU fans, we've got Clemson fans, and I know that they don't love – necessarily Alabama. But I hope they will make an exception for the, our next guest. Yes, he was a former Alabama quarterback, but now he's one of the most respected analysts, college football analysts on TV, and he's going to have a lot of great thoughts to talk. So everybody, please give a great hand to Greg McElroy. All right, so just peel back the curtain for a second, guys. Greg was booked on this show last night by me at a blackjack table at Harrow's. That's true. <laughs> and I would say this, uh, the, the table heated up after he, uh, after he left, so it was big. We, we were sad to see you go. The, the camaraderie and the fellowship certainly decreased significantly, but the stats <laughs> increased, which was important. So. Happy to do my part. <laughs> So before we get into this matchup and everything, I did want to ask you, we mentioned Jamie Newman before. Yeah. Uh, how big of a deal do you think this is for Georgia? Huge. Uh, especially knowing the offensive line issues that they might have next year, having a more mobile option at quarterbacks, huge. And um, in, in watching Jamie Newman, I, uh, full disclosure, I didn't know a lot about him. Um, we got the assignment. You watch him casually. I hadn't really studied him closely. Um, and we got an assignment to call their game against NC State. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take a peek at this guy. Watched a game, put it in, and said, whew, this guy's legit. Watch another one, watch another one. And it was as if I was watching, you know, kind of fell in love with him a little bit. So kind of became captivated with, with, with his skill set and his ability. I think he's a first-round talent. I really believe that. And uh, this was huge for Georgia to kind of get a little more dynamic at the quarterback spot if they're not able to run the ball the same way that they did in the last few years, uh, knowing their offensive line is going to be kind of patched together after some of the departures. So uh, I think it was huge, and I can't wait to see him with a little bit better supporting cast. And in terms of your alma mater, they had a lot of um, guys that were watching to see if they turn pro or stay, obviously Tua being the, the main one. And, you know, when you guys did the, the Citrus Bowl, at the time, the, the buzz going around Alabama was that they actually thought Tua was going to come back. How did that all play out? Uh, I, I thought for sure he was coming back. I mean, talked with him, uh, talked with people that had spent extended periods of time with him. Uh, but based on what they told me was that it was going to kind of depend entirely around the medical prognosis and the timetable for his recovery. They thought it'd be... Uh, pretty unlikely that he could do anything on the field prior to the beginning of middle of April. So if he was able to go out there and, and get maybe a little earlier time frame where he can maybe get on the field mid-March, then you would have more time to be a, properly evaluated by NFL teams. But uh, clearly something changed um, because I was <laughs> under the impression on, on Monday that, that he was coming back and then sure enough he announced one week later that he was going out. So I uh, was really, really surprised by it, but uh, I still think that whoever drafts him is is probably going to be higher up the draft ladder than I would anticipate, probably fifth or sixth overall to Miami or, or the Chargers. But they could still have one surprise, right? I think people would have guessed their running back, Najee Harris, would have been like one of the first ones out, right? right. Running back, <laughs> shelf life, all those things. Yeah. He still hasn't announced one way or the other. He could still come back. He could, yeah. And I, I, I thought he was coming out. You know, <laughs> I thought that was kind of to be expected. But if you look at the running back draft class, it might be the best running back draft class I can ever remember. 
with Dobbins, Taylor. We don't know what's going to happen with ETN. Uh, you look at DeAndre Swift. Um, then you have big body backs like the kid at Boston College, A.J. Dillon. I mean, there's probably seven or eight backs that are going to be drafted in the first three rounds. And there might be as many as three that are drafted maybe in the first round. Uh, Clyde edwards Lair, who we're still waiting to find out about as well. So uh, it's pretty crazy to think just how deep that running back class is. And, and Najee does have top 20 potential, top 15 potential, but he might not get drafted in the top 15 right now. So he could be a guy next year, if he were to shoulder the load, he could maybe elevate his draft stock significantly. Hey, Greg, for a lot of broadcasters, you have a unique perspective in that you not only know Nick Saban really well, but you played for him and played for him in the middle of this run really taken off. How do you think he's changed from the time you played for him to the time now you're around the program? Well, it's, he's a totally different guy now. I mean, it's, it's almost remarkable to see where he's at today uh, compared to where he was 10 years ago. I mean, he's just more approachable. He's more sympathetic. Like he just, <laughs> he's, he's evolved, I think, as a person significantly. When... We were in school, for lack of a better word, he was robotic. I mean, that's what he was. I mean, he was very uh, regimented, still is to a certain extent for sure, but I think he's more willing to meet the players where they're at as opposed to forcing the players to get to get on his level, essentially. So uh, it's changed a lot. Um, I think the program's changed quite a bit as well. Uh, results have been eerily similar year in to year out, I mean, because they've had still really, really good football teams, but... Um, for the most part, yeah, the, the way the programs run, the philosophy of the program, offensively speaking, how they've changed, there's, there's really not a whole lot of similarities between the team I played for and the team that now occupies the, the crimson and white uniforms. How do you think he will respond to this, and I say down year with quotes, right? They went <laughs> 11 and 2, they'll probably finish in the top 6 or 7, but obviously by their standards this was a disappointing season. Yeah, I, I think they'll come back and be right in it again next year. I mean, it's, I mean, if you if you bet against them, do so at your own peril. I mean, it's one of those situations where, yeah, they they just had it was a snake bit season. Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning, you have two linebackers that are lost in the off season. Uh, you have a bunch of injuries. You have guys leaving the program. It was just a it was a weird, unusual season, and yet they were still seven points away from being in a pretty good spot right um so i, I think they're going to be just fine and and uh i don't know if they're going to win the national championship next year but i'd be surprised if they weren't in the conversation especially in the preseason and and if i were to make a bet i'd probably say in the postseason as well for coming the uh, covering college football as you have do you ever remember any quarterback with the trajectory that we've seen from joe burrow not just what he's done in games but necessarily but you usually don't see quarterbacks make a 20% completion jump. And so people look at it as like, a lot of times you'll hear, oh, he worked with a quarterback guru. This is the thing that like we in the media, I think, love to find like there's some kind of thing, oh, an explanation. Or maybe it's the receivers are catching, you know, the ball better. Or the route, like when you look at it from a, from a forward quarterback's perspective, what do you think is the most uh, eye-opening aspect of what's happened. I think he's just so incredibly confident in what they're doing. I mean, confidence is everything at quarterback. It's, I mean, it is. It's everything. And I think he was able to generate a ton of confidence in the spring going through this new offense, this new shift in philosophy, and he has really taken to it. He obviously has a really good supporting cast. There's no denying that. And I think um, you can't play quarterback by yourself. So having really good players around you is huge, but he is by far the most improved player from year one to year two that I've ever covered. It's not even close. I thought he was an average player last year. Solid, good, solid player. Uh, nowhere near the top of college football, like not even close. And to see him now take that leap, uh, as far as confidence is concerned, it's, it's truly remarkable. I mean, it's a testament to his personality, it's a testament to Coach O and, and empowering Joe and making Joe feel good about the plan and making Joe feel good about what they're trying to do offensively. Uh, it's a testament to Steve Ensminger and Joe Brady bringing the best out in him. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's, it obviously speaks to how hard he worked in the offseason, too. I mean, he is more accurate this year for sure because even on some easy throws, I mean, he missed layups last year. I mean, little hitch, like right in the flat, got to hit it. I mean, you're a Division One quarterback, got to hit it. He wouldn't always hit it. 
Uh, and now he makes that throw left-handed blindfolded. Like, he doesn't even think about it. He's thinking about throwing up on wide receivers on back shoulder throws and all that other stuff. So uh, he has progressed tremendously, and it's, it's really been a lot of fun to watch this year. From an analyst perspective, you played in the NFL after Alabama. You know, we obviously know Joe Brady came from the Saints, and there's some Saints passing concepts that they've added. In terms of simplification of what they've done, like when you look at what they've done, how different is what LSU's offense is doing schematically compared to what other people are doing? Well, a lot of people think it's RPOs. I mean, that's, I mean, everyone, oh, look at the RPOs. They don't really do RPOs. They have a couple, and everybody has a few RPOs. They, you have to. I mean, it's, you'd be crazy not to use them with the rules now in college football offensively. So, uh, but what they do is they find matchups that are advantageous. That's really all it is. For instance, Oklahoma game, good example. Jefferson is six foot one and change. Uh, Brendan Radley Hiles, five eight on his best day. He's the nickel. Safeties, who for Oklahoma, I think are a liability. Jefferson. Like, if you want to play one on one coverage, that's fine. Just, you're going to get torched. And that's, I think, what's been really, really uh, difficult to defend about this team is they can not only run it between the tackles with Clyde Edwards-Elair, so you got to account for that. Think about being able to make sure that your numbers are sound in the run game. Uh, well, if you make sure your numbers are sound in the run game, you got one-on-ones outside to Jamar and Terrace. So good luck with that. Uh, and then, okay, sounds good. You want to double cover the two wide receivers on the perimeter? No problem. Play too high? We'll run it. You, uh, you want to play too high and then spin late, no problem. We'll adjust it. We'll throw it one-on-one. You just can't find, unless you have five NFL DBs, which very few teams have, uh, including you know, even Alabama, who is as talented. Clemson, super talented. Not five NFL DBs that are true, genuine cover guys. So uh, I think it's going to be really, really tough to defend this team, and, and it's obviously shown to be the case all year. Now, I'm not going to say that I think... LSU is going to run away with this, but from talking to some coaches who played uh, LSU, the one of the things was it seemed like Ohio State, at least defensively, would have been a bigger problem for them because I don't know if they have five DBs, but they have the best cornerback, they have good safeties, they have Chase Young up front. I mean, do you think that, I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen who you're predicting to win, but do you think that would have been a much different kind of game for them? Um, not necessarily because I think Ohio State, uh, I, I do think that the matchup between wide receiver and corner would have been a fascinating one. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Okuda playing against Jamar. I mean, oh, but, but A.J. Terrell is still a really good, really good corner, solid, not quite what Okuda is, but still that would have been really interesting. I mean, that's, what, that's why corner now is a premier position in college football. Uh, because if you have a guy that can completely eliminate their best offensive weapon, that's a huge advantage. Um, and I'm really interested to see if, if Clemson can do that. I, I think that um, their safeties in coverage are somewhat of a liability. Uh, those guys are better blitzers. They're better pressure guys. Isaiah Simmons is really uh, kind of a hybrid safety, safety linebacker anyways, but he's a really good edge rusher. And Kayvon Wallace, similarly, on the other side, he does a pretty good job of kind of getting home. And then Tanner Muse is big and physical and has great straight line speed, but not elite from a shifty standpoint. So I think that's what you have to defend if you're, if you're Clemson is make sure that they don't get one-on-ones against our safeties. Because if you do, that's really not a good matchup for Clemson. So Venable's got to be really smart and thoughtful about making sure those guys are kind of hidden uh, and, and not put on an island like that. My last one about the game, I asked Jacob the same thing before you. Um, Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne, those receivers against an LSU defense that has played a lot better lately, but has certainly been vulnerable at times. What are you most interested to see in that matchup? Um, uh, you know, I think LSU, you know what you're going to get. You're getting man coverage. <laughs> it's coming. It's been that way for 15 years, even back to when Chief was there. And, and uh, I mean, you're going to get man coverage. And they're going to say, Stingley, you got Higgins. They're going to say, uh, you know, Fulton, you're going to go take whoever it is on the other side. Doesn't really matter. Uh, Probably not Amari Rogers, I would think, because of the length. I would think that they'd probably bump him out to the outside, and that's that's kind of where I would anticipate that uh, against Justin Ross. Um, but uh, you know you're getting man-to-man. The length of Clemson's wide receivers are what make them a problem. They're not super fast. They're, 
the speed is not crazy. LSU will look and line up against Clemson's wide receiver and say, okay, I'm not super concerned about the top end speed because we've seen faster. But what makes Clemson's receivers really difficult to defend is they can adjust their body so easily and they're so flexible that when Trevor Lawrence puts it high, those guys just have a natural knack to be able to catch it at its highest point and adjust their body to make sure they make the catch. So even when they're covered, they're not really covered. Right. So that's going to be, I think, a really fascinating matchup is, is do they press them? Do they mix the looks? How do they, how do they try to you know, kind of disrupt the rhythm of that passing game? But uh, I think it's a really, really interesting matchup because I love Trevor Lawrence in a setting like this. I think his athleticism is enormous. And now with the way they're kind of using ETN in the passing game, um, you know, that has kind of opened up a new world, Pandora's box, so to speak for what they can do, because he's kind of a liability in protection. He struggles blocking ETN for all the great things he does. He's a real liability in protection. If you don't believe you just got to go look at the North Carolina game. I mean, right. uh, the linebacker North Carolina was wearing him out in the pass rush. So what they've done now is they've taken him out of protection. They're using him on little quick throws and getting him involved in the passing game where he's you know, at his best with the ball in his hand. So it's good versus good, and it should be a heck of a game. I wish in hindsight we had had clips and a telestrator yeah, we, ready we for you. We should have, yeah. I mean, <laughs> like you have laid out a lot of great <laughs> stuff that we could have illustrated that way. Um, we've got one more special guest for you guys coming, but first, Greg, tell us, I mean, you're going to be on TV a lot in the next uh, couple of days. Where can people, when and where can people see you? Uh, we'll be all over the place. And if I knew where I was going to be next, I would tell you. <laughs> you go all, wherever they tell you to go. All I know is I have to get to Jacksbury by four. That's all I know. So if I can walk about a quarter mile, I'll be in good shape. So Are uh, we to assume that uh, your sidekick, Tommy Luganville, is out here because of the miserable weather? Is uh, Lugs is probably, he probably touched down. And uh, I would imagine, I don't even know. Uh, I think it's actually pretty clear out right now. So knock on wood, let's, let's hope that, that it holds off for a little bit longer. But. All right, well, we thank you for joining us <laughs> on the Audible. Guys. A lot of great Appreciate insight there. Thank Thanks, you all. Okay. All right, how many of you guys watch the Scott Van Pelt Sports Center at midnight Eastern? All right, you guys are going to be really excited. We have... Not Scott Van Pelt. <laughs> but we have the man who makes the show, ladies and gentlemen, Stanford Steve Coughlin. So, rumor has it you were on Bourbon Street till after 2.30 in the morning. I was just going to say, Stu and Greg were meeting at a blackjack table. Do you want to tell them where you invited me to the podcast, where we were? Uh, I don't know. I don't, think, I don't think we should. There was a guy who looked a lot like Ryan Rosillo out. That's all I know. I see you representing Nick Rolovich right here. Yes, sir. How much free stuff do you have? A lot. A lot. Um, it's going to be, and I'm probably going to find a lot more uh, as I'm going to be moving in the next year or so. So, yeah, that, let's start there. So a little bit of news came out of the uh, SVP show. Uh-huh. F- favorite son of the D.C. area is yep. moving home. And he is, so are you going to be like Cato Kalen? Are you going to be living in the house with him? What's <laughs> <going on? laughs> well, I'll tell you right now, I'm looking at real estate prices down there, man. That's, it's a whole different world than, than Connecticut. But, uh, no, we're super pumped. Scott's had this uh, idea uh, in his head for a while. And, uh really really pumped we're going to be doing the show from the pti studio right in downtown dc so um if anybody has any clues about housing i'd really appreciate it montgomery county is preferable traffic i heard is really pleasant so all right thanks bud that's true we have the athletics washington dc editor here nice just coincidence he's a huge lsu fan you guys need to talk after the show sounds good by the way i remember being with your are we calling him your boss your co-host what are we calling him Oh, Scott? Scott. My Your buddy. Okay. So he was here, I want to say it was the LSU-Alabama National Federal Game. I remember walking Bourbon Street with him, uh-huh. and he, everybody knows he's six seven and, and stands out. And what mm-hmm. was fascinating to see, and obviously this is a huge college football uh, mecca at that point, so it's diehard college football fans. And he was with, our little group got bigger. Chris Long was in it. Mm-hmm. Stenum or Stenum from Virginia, like was Chris's buddy. 
and everybody is going to Scott, not towards like the Pro Bowl defensive end or whatever. Even like Chris Carter, because I think Chris's son, I forgot what Chris's son's name was. Duran. Duran, yeah. Like Chris Carter, great NFL Hall of Fame player. Nobody, you know, was like hounding him, but everybody is like slapping your guy on the back. And you could tell after a while, he's like, you don't, just because I'm six, seven, you don't need to be like whacking me like a side of beef and rocking, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah. Not like, like that. Some people treat him like a caged animal. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, look it, look it. But uh, I always tell him, try and wear a hat or something because he sticks out like a sore thumb. So everybody loves the segment of your show, the bad beat segment, right? Yep. How's bowl season for you? Was there anything that may, that would have you know stood out on that segment this bowl season? Uh, the the pinstripe bowl, Michigan State, uh, Wake Forest, Michigan State. I mean, you're waiting for a score. The over under was fifty, I think. It's twenty one twenty at half, and I think there was another one score. And then Michigan State has the ball. They miss a field, miss two field goals, and Michigan State uh, has first and goal at the eight, but the clock is against them. And they end up getting the first down, and the kid takes a knee. Like what, what you could, like we showed it. Wake Forest just is all stand up. The eight guys in the back are just standing there, laying, trying to let him score, but the kid took a knee. So that was that was pretty bad. This isn't a football reference, but I'm watching the show the other night, and I'm guessing some PA in Bristol saw this, where it was the shot where all of a sudden the fan is crushed in the first row. Like at what point does like how does that make Aaron? How did that get detected? Well, we have a. I mean. Fans out here, they're, they're great at, at checking in. Like any, anytime anything happens, you know, Twitter's been unbelievable. Like, you know, well, it was a really random basketball. What was the game? It was, uh, Siena and, um, Holy Cross. So, I mean, we have, there's a lot of degenerates out there, Bruce, <laughs> and a lot of them work at, at our place, but we go through, you know, we, we have a text chain. We have an email chain of just, you know, over the weekend, college football season. Hey, you know, this has happened. Mark this, you know, uh, whatever at Hawaii happened, you know, Sunday morning, you wake up w- with that stuff. But then, you know, we get together on Monday, mo- you know, Monday afternoons um, for our meeting and, and we go through it and it's just, you know, we're, we're watching for that stuff and, and figure it's funny and people like it. So when you walk around, when you come to an event like this and you walk around, like are people coming up to you telling you their awful gambling stories? Uh, it's more of just screaming bad beats. Like people just like bad beats. And it's like, yep. Cool. Yeah. I hope you. What's your uh, name? I hope you trademarked it. I uh, I believe so. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Right. You're buying beers for everybody here then. <laughs> so, so something dawned on me. So as I see the Hawaii gear, I know you have lots of stuff. You know probably more equipment men, equipment people than probably anybody in the media. Having said that, you may get some good intel on what's going on. This player's hurt. This whatever. How do you handle that? Do you like? Uh yeah, it's. That's a really good question because I, I mean, being a former player, I always hung out in the equipment room. That's, that's, the equipment room is where everything goes down. Camaraderie is built. The guys in the team, you know, there's equipment room guys and then there's not. You know, there's, you know, and I, I always felt like it was the guys who just want to be around it more. You know, where, where being at Stanford, you know, I probably should have been in the library more, but I was in the equipment room. Um, but it's, it's, it's a fine line. You know, like, uh, some guys will just say, hey, Everything's on everything uh, except injuries, you know, and no injury updates, you know, and I, I totally respect that. Like, I, I get it. Like, there is there needs to be some privacy, you know, in this world now with social media and stuff. It seems like it's really going thin. And I, it, 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 I, will, I will never, you know, ask. A, I mean, I'll ask a question, but, you know, if they say, you know, I can't really say that, it, you know, it's come up, you know, but, you know, I, I, hey, that's that's their ground, man. You know, that that. That's a hollow ground, the equipment room and the locker room and in and, and the coach's office and in the, the football facility. So I have a lot of respect for that. Speaking of Stanford, what happened this year? So your, your guy, Shaw, is he going to get it going back again here soon? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't believe it. Debo's coming back. He was a corner that was, you know, at the beginning of the year, he was in the top ten. Um, the issue is uh, the, the roster. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of depth. And um, injuries, you know, I mean, they had, they lost, a, you know, another top 10 pick early in the year, uh, Walker Little, and, you know, he's coming back. So I, I, lo- I really like the quarterback, Davis Mills. It was really cool to see him get healthy. He's a kid from Georgia, actually. Um, so it's just, I mean, I thought the conference was a lot more balanced than it has been. And, uh, you know, I, it's Stanford, man. I, I get it. You're going to have one, 
one of those seasons. This this run they've been on is absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's incredible. been the unusual thing is that they haven't had that. that yeah, down exactly. Yeah, well, they've been real. I mean, as good as they've been, they've been really, really lucky uh, with injuries and guys stepping up and and being real versatile and playing multiple positions. But I want to say before the season, one of you guys were. I think it might have been used to, but they had a chance to win to have the most wins in the decade in the yes, conference. That right. Was good memory. I did write that. Right? Yes. I read your stuff. <laughs> So they've had a lot of coaching staff moves, though. Do you think that caught up with David a little bit? Uh, I don't want you to necessarily out anybody. Or, but. No, I, I, I think it happens everywhere, though, Bruce. You know, like you get, you know, there's a lot of intricacies with, with the coaching staff of, you know, this guy's leaving. And then there's, there's stuff that happens where guys just take on responsibility. You know, who's doing, who's doing the scout team cards? You know, like, oh, so-and-so did them, but he's gone now. Like, you know, there's stuff that falls through the cracks there that, that happens a lot. So, um, I, I mean, there's been overturn, but I mean, at, at Stanford, it always used to be like, you know, go to Stanford and, and do well. And then, you know, you go, you know, it was, it was a, what do they call it? a launching pad, you know? So, um, yeah, I, it's probably caught up, you know, but there's a lot of things going on in the, in the sports changing. And that's what, I mean, it's so amazing with Clemson. Like he's, what, he lost his first coordinator this year. They're going to South Florida. And yeah. how long, like it's, you gotta be, you gotta be as lucky as good sometimes. All right, so we, we brought up the, the betting, so what, what's everybody want to know here before we let you go? What's your play for the game? Uh, I think, here, first off, everyone, I was out at the Fiesta Bowl, and everybody um, felt like, even at halftime, you know, we're talking Ohio State, you know, how they match up with LSU, and then the whole game, like, it felt like everybody thought Ohio State matched up better with LSU, and I totally disagreed, because in order to beat LSU, you have to keep pace and you have to score. And I think Clemson is is, is built better. Um, I'm getting killed all week because I still, if the quarterback happens, I'm, I'm taking 16 for Clemson. Even over Joe Burrow? Yes. Um, uh, and, and after what I saw in that Fiesta Bowl, I, 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 I was blown away with that performance and how tough, he, the toughness he showed me and the playmaking abilities when they did four plays and 94 yards like against that. Like that was, that was incredible. So I think Clemson can keep pace, but I, I, I still, you know, Jacob was talking about how every defense has changed what they do. You know, LSU has made defenses change what they do. So I think Clemson, you know, is, is going to fall in line with that stuff and, and struggle a little bit. So I got LSU 36-33, Clemson covers. Clemson covers. You heard hey, it here. Before we let you go, who, who is a bigger star, really, when you're around them? Who do people freak out more for? The bear or Rosillo? The bear's more recognizable, I'll tell you that. More of a sex symbol? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sassiness, I like. He's got a lot of sass. So, I'll go bear. All right. Bruce, I'm always, Bruce is always good for the, bringing up the racier elements of the Audible. Yeah. So, Appreciate before we go, tell, tell us about where people can find your show and the podcast. And what you do. Uh, well, Monday, we're doing, I do a daily wager show now on ESPN, uh, ESPN2. That'll be on. Uh, we're doing, we'll be over out by the Fan Fest at the stadium uh, Monday, but Van Pelt's on after the game, midnights, every night, ESPN. All right. We thank you for joining us. All right. Maybe people Thanks, will Steve. see you out on Bourbon Street later. Uh, say hello. Thank you. All right, so those of you who, who listen to the Audible, you know we always end it with the mailbag. We're going to do that right now. We're going to do an audio mailbag. Thanks to whoever just adjusted the lights. I had not been able to see anybody all show, and now I can see all of you. Um, who's got, and it doesn't have to just be about this game, anything college football, um, or, you know, I don't know, Bruce, maybe you want to ask Bruce about, you know, workouts, like strength, strength coaches, et cetera. Whatever you guys want to talk Whatever about. Whatever you want to talk about. So what do we see the next five years at USC? Oh, great question. If Clay Helton doesn't obviously win soon, at some point they're going to have to make a change. Right now, the economics of it is it would set them back almost $50 million to get him and the staff out there. Lynn Swan made some really shaky business decisions, uh, to say it mildly. Not just in Clay Helton's deal, but also in guaranteed money and multi-year deals to assistant coaches. So that would have put him back almost $25 million, and then you're talking about bringing in a new staff. So they're going to have to 
hire a new defensive coordinator, a largely a new defensive staff, special teams coordinator. They open with Alabama. Now, having said that, they still have some really good players. They have a pretty good D-line, and Keaton Slovis and their skill receivers are really good. I can't believe that they're going to be awful. I mean, they're going to be mediocre for another five years. I just think they're around too many good players, and eventually – I think they're going to bounce back. I just don't know if it's going to be next year, but I'd be surprised. I could see them being a top 15 team next year because I think the talent's really good. It's just a matter of they need more of an edge on defense. That's what they've been lacking. And if they can find that, they still have as much talent as anybody on the West Coast. I think the tricky thing is I do actually think they could be pretty good next year, but, but pretty good if it's top 15 is still not good enough for USC fans. So... I don't know, they could win the Pac-12, and then Helton's going to be there even longer. But then this uh, period they're going through right now where they've had real trouble recruiting because of the uncertainty around him could catch up to them. Yeah, one thing just on that is, is certainly LSU fans, you've seen how much Ed Ogeron has evolved. I do think Clay Helton, who is a guy most USC fans never won in the first place, he has evolved. He made some changes last year. I mean, it was a dreadful 2018. They went, won five games, but they, I think he did make some smart moves. If he continues to show some growth, I think there's people there who would, who would be like, all right, we're kind of stuck with this situation. What is it going to be? The reality is, unless he gets them into the playoff, I don't think the fan base is ever going to pull back. Like, I'm sure there's a handful of LSU fans who probably didn't want Coach O. Now they're all in. Um, it's it's going to take something like that for him to get pull those people who hated him and or just didn't want him to feel differently. Okay. I'm enough of a college football nerd that I think I've purchased both of your books. <laughs> so um, Thank you. Uh, that said, Meat Market was an incredible book, and it featured, obviously, Coach Ogeron. Uh, is there a possibility, A, of uh, a sequel, given the LSU season this year? And two, where do you think Frank Wilson lands? Uh, uh, I, I can ask the first one a lot easier than the second one. Um, yeah, I think there is a pretty good possibility of a sequel. Um, hey, breaking yeah. news. Uh, just on Sources say. Yeah, on background on that, so I've been around him uh, quite a bit, even when he was the interim at, at USC, and I could see this, I want to say see this coming, not the offense and anything, but like when I went through there in April and saw Joe Brady and what they were doing, you know, I had a book proposal on my laptop that I had written two or three years ago, and I kind of said I need to start to move on that because I really think some of this is happening. I didn't think they were going to do exactly this, but I thought it was going that direction. The story is bigger than, it's more than just a football story. Uh, as far as Frank, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Nick Saban would love to have him. I think LSU would love to have him. I mean, years ago, I remember coming down for the New Orleans Bowl. This was back when, like, DeAndre Brown played at Southern Miss, how long ago that was. And I went to Frank's daughter's basketball game. She was like six. I think she plays college basketball somewhere. Is that long ago? And um, seeing how many people flocked to see Frank, like his reputation in the city, in this city, and if you guys probably already know that, is unreal. So I don't doubt that he's going to have a lot of offers. I wouldn't shock me if he ended up going to the to the NFL either to try to do that, though. I think he's going to have a lot of opportunities. I honestly don't know. All I got was a I DM'd him after Christmas, and I got a nice note from him, and that was about it. What are the uh under the radar stories that have been mentioned time and a few times during games, but never really, I don't know if it's exploded nationally or not, was LSU's willingness to sort of take chances on technology and maybe in some cases lead the, the NCAA in technology, both in conditioning and, 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 and decision making for like a Joe Burrow. And like, uh, is that, is that really a, an advantage that LSU has and are other schools going to catch up this year or not? Yeah, I, I think that is a sizable thing, and I don't know if, if Brody uh, Miller's still around here somewhere, but Brody did a good story, a couple, I mean, he's done a couple of them on this, but Jack Marucci, to me, like, this is kind of the perfect storm for LSU, and yeah, Ed brought in Joe Brady, but some of the guys, Tommy Moffitt um, is ahead of the curve on what he's done in sports performance, and I think Jack Marucci, just from really this year, I've seen it uh, and gotten to know him. Some of the, the things he does in terms of just not like taking care of the athletes, but also in terms of the development piece and some of the things that they are so far ahead of the curve on what they're doing. As far as like analytics stuff, one of the stories that I really didn't have room to do because I came back from the spring with like four LSU stories and I wasn't going to write all of them at that point. But 
they were really pretty invested in analytics with a company they they partnered with, and George Munoz, who is a uh, an analyst there. I mean, that's something that they become very smart about. What Ed would call, you know, their winning edge situations and different scenarios, because as LSU fans probably are painfully aware, under Les, and Les was a terrific coach, but they would have a lot of things go haywire at the end of games. And Ogeron was very mindful, like, we got to be prepared on all these situations so when it happens, our players and our coaches are comfortable in that situation. So they rehearse a lot of that. They also do a lot, like, I mean, he's not going to go to the to the book, which is a big binder of analytics that gets updated every week and live off it. But I do think he's open to it, and that's part of his story is just how open to change and do things that a lot of other coaches are, are pretty resistant to. I'm told we have time for one more question. Hi, guys. Um, regarding QB management at universities post the Justin Fields there at Georgia, how do you forecast Q roster management with QBs at um, blanking here, sorry. Uh, you mean like in terms of how you deal with the fact that guys are constantly transferring now? Yes, or yeah, like the starter, JT yeah. Daniels had the decision at USC. Yeah. I mean, I think that now coaches approach it at like going in knowing that whichever guy doesn't win the job is going to leave. So you have to go into each recruiting cycle. Like it used to be, I don't know, five years ago, maybe longer, that if you had a you know, redshirt freshman starter, then all, we, we don't need a quarterback in the next class. You've got to have a quarterback in every class, and most of these schools are constantly mining the grad transfer market. I mean, think about for, for the Jamie Newman to Georgia thing to come together that quickly. Obviously, Georgia was already thinking about their plan for post-Jake Fromm. So um, it's a little dizzying, to be honest. I feel like, and you've probably spoken to coaches about this, like this has become kind of all-consuming in terms of the, I mean, it's all positions, obviously, the transfer portal, but quarterback in particular. Yeah, and the reality is a lot of these guys aren't going to be patient, and so I think you're constantly hitting the reset button. Uh, Urban Meyer told us a story, or I'm sorry, Ryan Day told us a story about Urban Meyer, where last season... At one point, he turned to Urban Meyer when he was the head coach and said, we may have to look at a transfer because Dwayne's thinking of going. Dwayne being Dwayne Haskins. He's like, going where? He's like, uh, to the NFL. He's, and he was kind of like shocked that a one-year starter would leave, but he did, and they were fortunate that Justin Fields ended up transferring and being able to go there. I think what is going to be a very interesting story to follow is the grad transfer who looks and says, all right, I'm going to go where whether it's to Oklahoma or potentially to LSU, where you see a track record of guys who have gone in and had success, it's kind of going to be that thing where it's the rich get richer. Like part of me was surprised that Jordan Love, who played at Utah State and was terrific last year but really struggled with the coaching change this year, that he wasn't a grad transfer. He ended up saying, all right, I'm just going to go right to the NFL. But where you see some really good maybe group of five quarterback, and I don't want to say Wake Forest is that, but you know, it's not a high – it's not a – high-profile program, Jamie Newman ended up saying, all right, I'm going to go to Georgia. And I think you'll see more examples of that. It's definitely something you've seen in, in basketball. I think you're going to see more of that. And because of the quarterbacks, these guys are not patient. And I think a lot of times there's some, uh, I don't know, uncertainty that comes with it. Because I think you've seen now, they're going to remember the Joe Burrow. They're going to remember the Jalen Hurts. They're not going to remember, like, remember, like, Danny O'Brien, who was a really yeah. good player at Maryland and went to Wisconsin, didn't do it. There's guys like that who it usually doesn't work out. Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, we mentioned earlier that the, we went a long period where there weren't all that many success stories. Now we've had a bunch, including a Heisman winner. So, I mean, the fact that the quarterback from Wake Forest is doing this, as opposed to, say, a group of 5-1, is, is pretty telling. So... A uh, couple quick notes before we go. If, if by chance this is your first um, time consuming the Audible with Stu and Bruce, you can subscribe to our podcast. It comes out every week on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or any of the number of the other uh, podcast apps. Same thing with Andy's show, the Andy Staples show. And if you have not yet subscribed to The Athletic, our wonderful website full of tremendous articles, we have a little promo here for you, theathletic.com slash CFB Live, college football, CFB Live, 40% off of an annual subscription. Thank you so much to everybody who came out. I know there's a lot of things to do in New Orleans. Thanks for coming and listening to us talk football.
We've really had fun. For those of you who aren't already subscribed, please subscribe to The Athletic. We have a 40% discount offer for you at theathletic.com backslash Live. Ton of content between now and the kickoff of the national title game on Monday. Please follow us all on The Athletic. Tons of good Tigers content, both Clemson and LSU, uh, on our website and on our app. So thanks again for coming out. Thanks to the House of Blues. Thanks to Trader Joe's. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the game. Go Tigers. Thanks. Things cause the greatest thrills It's in the past, now I think I'll pass So come on, get over here Ah, yeah, whoa, whoa Talk about it for years Ah, yeah, whoa, whoa Sports, recreational drugs, recreational vacation. You can't get enough. Nobody telling me no. I'll do whatever I want if we can make it home by dinner time. So come on, get over here.